And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Frazier and Dieter's Business Speed. I'm John Ray alongside Roger Lesby. Roger? Hey, John. Good morning. we got a beautiful spring day, and we've got a great guest with us here today. We sure do, and thank you for bringing Tim Evans to the studio. Tim is the chairman founder of Evans General Contractors. Tim, welcome. Hey, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here and, and um, interested to hear what you guys have to questions you have for me, and I'll do my best to answer them today. Well, we appreciate that. Tell us a little bit about you and Evans General Contractors. Let's give an introduction yeah. to your firm. Um, Evans started in 2001. I think it was February, the beginning of February 2001. And it was uh, something I did. I, I became a single parent before that period, and I couldn't travel as much anymore. So I actually started the company kind of as a default move so I could be home in the evenings. But Evans, over the last 21 years, has grown from a um, – small family-run builder in Georgia and South Carolina to a national and actually an international firm. We have 300-plus employees. We do about a billion five to billion seven a year in revenue. And we work uh, throughout the United States and in Europe. Um, our primary markets are pharmaceutical, uh, manufacturing of all sorts, uh, advanced technology, which we consider mission-critical types projects, uh, data centers, and other types of semiconductor work. Um Commercial work would be logistics. Over the last few years, we've all struggled with the supply chain issues throughout the country. But one of the big things that have happened in the last three years is most uh, most businesses have realized that the depth of storage that they had previous to COVID was not was is not enough. So there's been a big push for Amazon, FedEx, and a lot of other companies, Walmart, to expand the depths of their storage and enable them to supply um, goods to consumers. Um, the last market would be I said healthcare, life science, advanced tech, manufacturing, um, commercial construction, which would be office buildings and corporate facilities. Mm -hmm. You know, the projects you're describing there sound like they're really high expertise, specialized expertise kind of projects. We would like to think they are. There's some that are more simple in design and construction. Uh, the logistics or warehouse or people call them distribution facilities are very straightforward they're simply a box. Um, they're critical, of course, because you have to keep things protected and dry. But that's probably the the simplest types of construction we do. The the work on the pharmaceutical, where you have a lot of high purity piping and very very uh, sophisticated uh, air conditioning systems or cooling systems, that would be on the more technical end. But we do a lot. We do a mixture. We do some stuff that are very. Um, we're doing a um, a classified project for the military up in the Northeast, which is. Uh, I, well, I better stop right there on that one. I better okay. not just yeah. <laughs> You've but anyway, yeah, we, we do a wide variety of work. Some of it's simple. Some of it's technically very sophisticated. And then last year they had a, a wonderful 20th year celebration for the firm. I was, uh, I was honored enough to be invited to that, and it was a super event, Tim. And, um, and then they do some local projects as well. So they built Wellstar right here on Old Milton. Mm, yeah. Uh, not only is Tim the, uh, the founder of Evans General Contractor, but he's my landlord. Uh, they <laughs> built the building that Fraser and Dieter is in. And then they outgrew that and just built another two-story building right behind uh, Gwinnett Tech. And uh, so they had just moved in there at the beginning of this year. It's funny you say that, Roger, because it seemed like it was a struggle for the first five years. Everybody thinks when you start a business that you're going to instantly become rich. But in the first five years, there were two times that I probably didn't take an income for six months. I was late on my bills, late on everything, but I managed to pay the our employees and our subs, so we kept going. But over the last 10 years, we've grown a lot. Um, we've been very blessed. Um, 
to expand. And there's a number of reasons for that. But um, yeah, we were in your building and we, like I said, the last two years has been a huge jump. We grew about, we grew 30 or 40% in the last 24 months. So it's been a challenge and that enabled us to go to another building or build another building and occupy it. Yeah. And it's a great building. So uh, yeah. we're, we're pleased to be there. Yeah. And uh, there's some humility sitting here with us because uh, Tim didn't put his name on the top of the building, right? He, That's he, right. He allowed yeah. us to put our name on that building. People uh, think we own that building, but Tim Evans and his group own well, that yeah. building. Whenever there's a problem, I tell him to call Roger. <laughs> I love it. Roger's now the complaint department. Huh? Yes, he is. Okay. Well, Tim, it would be great, I think, for our audience if you could maybe share uh, why you think you've been so successful. Hey, I mean, this is not, you just didn't ride a wave to get to where you are. I mean, there was some intentional management uh, strategies, I guess, that you executed to make this happen, right? Yeah, I think it's funny that you say this because yesterday um, I had a conversation with my son and my daughter, and um, we were talking about that, you know, and I really believe, and I'm not saying this to be humble, but our growth is a function of our culture and our people. It's not a function of me and my family. I think that we've been extremely fortunate because of our culture to attract true entrepreneurial type managers. So from the very beginning, um, there was three or four fellows that in the early years were instrumental. Uh, one was a German, one was a client that was a developer that came to the construction. We call he went, came to the dark side. And then the other, a guy named Chris Hilgeman, um, he came over from another contractor, but I really believe truly that the the ethics, morals, and culture of the company is real attractive to people. Now, on top of that, we you know at our company, I tell people if you'll never have to ask for a raise or a bonus, if you're doing your job, you will never have to seek that out. You know, unfortunately, if you're not doing your job, you won't be here very long. But I think it's a cultural issue that helped us get these people. And the collective talent um, from people coming from other large platforms of business, that knowledge coming in with some of the old ways we did stuff and how we treat our customers and how we treat our subs is, I really do believe that's it. It's not, it's not a very uh, magical answer. It's just basic blocking and tackling. But a lot of owners talk about doing the right thing, but they don't. When push comes to shove, the dollar overrides their decisions. And I promise you and assure you at our company that dollar does not override the right decisions we will not do that if it costs us a million bucks and it's ethically right but we're going to eat it then we eat it and i think too often people are controlled by boards or or stock prices that force them to make short-term financial decisions that aren't the right long-term decisions so they so they um you know it's not the right decision and then both your children work with the company, and you guys did some significant planning with the succession, and uh, RT now is the uh, new president. Yeah, he. Um, that was a real challenge, you know, as you well know, several years ago, I was diagnosed with a cancer that was not curable and not treatable, and uh, luckily for me, I was able to get out to MD Anderson, and a clinical trial medicine has kept me alive this long, but uh, 48 months ago, really almost five years ago now, we had to go through some extremely fast planning, um, not just from a tax standpoint and a personal financial standpoint, but from a business standpoint. NRT was younger back then, but you know, I made the decision that I wanted to go this way. And the other board, we have a very established, very strong management board, and they all agreed. And um, he stepped in, but he, he had the support of the board that I've had for years. And so RT, with the help of the board and managers, he's been very successful. As a matter of fact, 
um, the last two years we've grown 30, 40%, you know, under their leadership and hopefully maybe have some other platform I left behind when I stepped down. Folks, we're here chatting with Tim Evans. Tim is the chairman founder of Evans General Contractors. You know, you're touching on some issues that a lot of family businesses have to go through. The the issue of non-family members creating a culture that not only includes non-family members, but helps them thrive. Mm-hmm. Succession planning. What have you learned out of all that, this process you've been through? I would encourage anybody, no matter how small or how large your business is, you never know when a tragedy is going to strike. And I was not prepared at the time. I thought I was. And I had millions of dollars of life insurance to offset taxes. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But I would encourage everybody that can hear this message, be afraid of it, get on it as quick as you can, and start talking to you know your CPA and your tax attorneys to help you plan for it. Because if you get caught off guard with it in our country, um, the tax laws are still reasonably favorable, but that could, it will shock you how much it costs. You know, you feel like as an owner and entrepreneur that you built a business with some great help from great people. You created this pile of wealth. Moving that pile of wealth down down your family is extremely difficult. And it takes time and planning. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And the whole family needs to be on board with that planning and the communication needs to be there because it's it's it, it's very, very seldom that it never makes it past the third generation. A few months ago, we were blessed to have one of our clients on here that was fourth generation, and right. that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's – and, that, you know, you're right, Roger. Like, you know, what happens is most of this – the that, that first group of four people that really helped me, that really deserve a lot of credit to where we got, you know, the first 18 years – we all came from similar backgrounds. They were families that were hardworking families, medium, middle-class Americans. We all had to work to go to, through high school and college. And there's this drive mechanism in those sorts of people, and I found this to be the case. Those people that have some struggles or some adversity early in life uh, seem to be, not always, but sometimes are a little bit tougher and have a little bit more get-up-and-go because they want to get to the next level. And that transfer to the second one, I feel very fortunate, and I know I'm don't want to talk about my kids a lot. People get sick of hearing about your kids, but both my kids worked throughout high school and college where they played sports. When they came into the company, um, both of them went, you know, to the field or to, you know, they didn't just walk into management. They were out doing the grunt work for several years. And um, that transition has been very successful. Now to your point, it'll be something to see if it transfers to the third generation. Cause I do agree with that. Oftentimes that third generation for whatever reason, not always, but often it doesn't do well. Yeah, I agree. At least that's what we have seen. So between the the, the tax implications and then just the, the the handoff, if you will, to the to the next generations, it can be a difficult task. We've tried to plan a lot. Um, you know, often you know, counsel with you and ask your opinion on things. And but diversity, diversification of the assets is critical. Not having it lumped, rolled up in one business and. You know, we speak about Evans General Contractors because that's been the basis of the wealth creation that we have been fortunate enough to experience. But then diversifying that into uh, passive forms of income, whether it's timber, real estate, you know, gas, oil, you know, whatever resource, but getting diversity in it, not just sitting on it in your business is critical. And Tim is a pretty humble guy and he's a pretty private guy, but he's also a very generous person. 
and uh, somebody who steps up and does things without actually having his name attached to it. Mm. But one of the great things that they've done is they've set up a foundation. Tim, I don't know whether you could talk about that at all. Sure. About two th- my daughter deserves a credit for this. In 2008, we were living in a community over in Johns Creek, and she was driving to school one morning. She was a senior, and she drove past. There was four trailers um, about a half a mile down from our home, and while our house was not a castle or some giant thing, it was a relatively nice home. And yet it was, it bothered all of us because right down the street, there was these four trailers and maybe it was five. But anyway, one day she was riding down there and there was three little kids, elementary school children waiting on a bus. And it was in December. None of them had a coat on. This is really how it started. And Sarah, my daughter's always been very empathetic and very compassionate with other folks, whether it's animals or people. So she drove back to the house and I was getting ready for work and I remember she was literally sobbing. She came and she said, Dad, you've got to help these people. And she said, there's three little kids. One's in a T-shirt, and they're all waiting out there. Now, there was it wasn't as though their mother, it was a single parent. A, a, a mother was the only parent they had in the household. But she had to work because we saw her at the Waffle House. After I got to know her, I knew she worked at the Waffle House, and she worked at the CVS. So she did two jobs, doing the best she could. But these three, they didn't have enough. So that evening after I you know, kind of, you know, digested what Sarah told me. I was trying to think of a way to approach the house, their their home. So I drove up there that evening and went to the front door and I made up a story, which wasn't true. I said I had a foundation, which at that time wasn't true. And that we had a thousand dollars. It was about Christmas, a thousand dollars. And I said, I'm going to give it to somebody. And we just picked you. And the lady was very nice. She said, you know, I know we doesn't look like we have much, but we're happy and we, we could use it, but I don't want to take it. And so that's how it started. And I said, well, why don't you think about it overnight? So, And I said, but we're going to give it away, so why don't you take it? So I drove back home. Um, she had my card. She called me the next day, and she said, if if it's okay, we could use it. And so we took it back down. And then that started the conversation of getting to know her because people are, you know, she didn't know me. She was probably uncomfortable. So from that point, I got to know her, and I realized we saw her at the Waffle House, and I saw her at the CVS, so we saw her. And so that started the dialogue, and so we started doing – $200 worth of, cause you didn't know, you don't know enough about them. You don't want to give the money to somebody that's going to use it for drugs or drinking. I didn't know. So we would do a $200 gift card each month for Publix, which is, she lived across the street from that and 200 in cash. And that's how it began. And as we watched that young, that lady raise those three kids, um, a couple of years later, you know, we increased it over time. And then I think two or three years later, we bought a house and, um, leased it back to her for her to have out because they lived in a trailer, didn't have windows in it or had cardboard on some of the windows. It was really rough looking, Mm. but it started from that. And then it's grown today. We do inner school city programs in all the cities we're involved with. Um, We do a lot of, we call it a single parent financially distressed household. So we focus on people on a grassroots level where we, we applaud the large organized structures like United Way and things like this, but we like to work on a grassroots level. So we focus on providing scholarships to primarily Hispanic and black children in single-parent financially distressed households. We do after-school programs in a number of the cities we're in. We're involved with the terminally ill. There's a lot of people in life that think that if you're terminally ill, you automatically get taken care of. That's not true either. So we focus on those kind of needs, um, and, uh, and, and it's been wonderful. We've put a lot of kids through college. Like A lot of the population doesn't always qualify for government assistance, um, and a kid can't help it whether their parent, if their parent brought her from Mexico over here 
And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying they can't, the kid can't help it. Right. But a lot of times we'll see kids in high school or we'll be approached through other folks saying, this is a wonderful person. They've had great grades in school. They want an opportunity. So over the years, we've probably provided, you know, a few dozen uh, assistance to kids that couldn't qualify or kids that can qualify that their parents don't make enough and they fall between the cracks. So education's a real big deal. And uh, I had to work full time to go to college. My parents couldn't afford to send me. So I was one of those people that worked in the field as a laborer and a carpenter every day, five days a week from seven to four. And then I went to Georgia State at night and I was always dirty when I showed up at class. And so I was one of those people that would have liked to have helped myself. Now, those are great stories, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for sharing and thank you for your generosity. But I know education's on your heart and you were just recently tapped to the Georgia Board of Regents. And so talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, this was a big surprise. Um, um, Governor Kemp appointed me and I re- I've only gotten to know Governor Kemp over the last three years and I really have grown to be fond of him personally, but I admire what he's done business-wise or for the state of Georgia. He's done a phenomenal job for everybody Regardless of your um, your party affiliation, Bryant or Governor Kemp is really for everybody, and I've watched this, and I really admire that with him. So, as I've gotten to know him and gotten behind him, because I want to help him, you know, I'm not interested in just helping a party. I'm interested in helping those people that do the right thing for Georgia, mm-hmm. and I've watched that with him, and he's done it. So, over these last three years, I um, have gotten to know him, and he called me. I guess. Um, a few months back and said, hey, would you consider this? And I really didn't know what the Board of Regents do, Rogers. I've heard about it, but I really didn't know that, that what was involved, and I was a little nervous. Um, so anyway, I, I talked to a few people for a couple of days, and he called me back, I think, on a Tuesday and said, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, I'd really be honored. But, you know, are you sure you want somebody like me on it? You know, um, I had a st- I struggled to get out of college. You know, I don't know what I could offer. So he said, yes, he said, I think you'd be a great one to have. And you're, you know, you know, we think similarly as far as, you know, doing the right thing for everybody. So I got on it and it's been an unbelievable experience. Um, I would like to say this for people that don't know all the board members. I am absolutely amazed at the the backgrounds and the diversity of the group. Um, it's really a well-balanced group. And while while most of them are probably, you would consider them fiscally conservative or moderately conservative, most of them are socially moderate. So they're somewhere in between, and they're all truly committed. I, I tell my wife this every night. These folks are committed to do the right thing for the students. It's not about politics. It's not about anything but doing the right thing for the educational system, for you know both our fac- the faculty, the teachers, professors, and the students. So you know I've heard some criticism of the board in the past, you know, in the media, if they would take the time to really get involved and look at the backgrounds on these folks, you would be amazed. Uh, it's not a bunch of old white business guys that are ultra conservative that, that that's how I think it's a really true good mix of folks. And they, they really are committed to do the right thing. So I feel it's a big honor for me, probably one of my greatest honors. And then, and then the other thing that you have a big heart for is actually Alpharetta itself. Yes, and, and all the great things there that uh, that you and your company are doing uh, in in our community, and it is a great community. We're blessed to be up here. Yeah, we are very fortunate. I tell folks all the time. I grew up in Chambly, Georgia, when Chambly was way out back in the fifties and sixties, 
that was where you, you could buy a house for $15,000 because nobody else wanted to live out there. We were that far. There wasn't a 285. There's no interstate. It, it was, was farmland, farm, right? Yeah, yeah, farmland. The Spruels had a bunch of cows, and some of my dad friends had cows and corns. That was what it was. But it's been so nice um, just to be able to live in a community like Alfred or, or Roswell, or, and there's several others you know, around the city. But, yeah, our police department um, – our school systems, all the things that you want for your kids, that everybody wants for the kids. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is. Most people want the same things. They want to be safe at night. They want their kids to have a good education. They want their children to have an opportunity in the future. And the city of Alpharetta has done a marvelous job of managing the growth. I hope they I hope they slow it down, even though that would impact our construction. I'd rather see it slow down a little bit and, and really keep the quality that's made it so great. But I can tell you, the restaurateurs, the businesses, the police department, the fire department, our first responders, the teachers, you know, all of us go about our jobs every day and we don't really realize the impact those people have on our job, on all of us, but we are incredibly blessed to be in a community like this. So for all the politicians and all the folks I just named, really appreciate it. Yeah, because I always say if it wasn't for Avalon, the big story up here would be downtown Alpharetta. That's right. And the transformation there. Yeah. And now Milton is following in those exact same footsteps. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what downtown Milton is uh, now creating. Well, you think about it, Roger, when you and I were kids, you know, like you you didn't to walk around like what you can do on a Friday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday night. If you walk in Roswell, Milton, Alpharetta, Johns Creek, you see families walking around like they did, you know, 45 years ago, you'll see people in strollers with little kids coming to play at the City Green Center. You'll see them over in uh, Milton going walking around there with the families. The way the communities develop, you feel safe. You're able to enjoy your neighbors because they're closer proximity. You know, it used to be everybody wanted five acres or an acre and a house. Now, times have changed. You know, you have more of a village concept with people being able to walk to dinner, um, walk to go get something, you know, at the store. It's really nice. It's, it's wonderful. So the other big story out there, Tim, is the economy. And so what do you guys see? Because my my construction clients are are very good for me in terms of backlog and and what that's going to do economically, because they're usually 18 months, two years out. Yeah, that's a good point, because um, I had one of the president of one of our banks called me about, maybe it was in January, said, what do you see? Excuse me. and, And, you know, the reality is like we saw inflation occurring we saw inflation occurring 18 months ago, just going crazy in our world. We saw it begin then. Well, lumber, I guess, was one of the first commodities. Lumber was one, of them, and that's because your residential is driving that. Mm-hmm. On top of it, it's both the, the the rate of growth we had, but it's also what COVID did as far as um, temporary temporarily stalling or slowing down production. So you had two forces that were restricting. You know, you had the demand, but then you had a restriction caused by COVID. So. That was supposed to be, if you heard, you know, some of the economists, not all, but some of them saying that this this bump that we would see inflation would be a temporary thing, bounce up and down. There was never a second that I thought that. I never thought or into, and I've been saying this is not a temporary deal. And but what what has happened is you've had all this growth, very limited supply or limited supply. You've had restrictions in the supplier base for commodity items, consumer durables, and all this. So that all fueled inflation on top of having low interest rates. And I personally believe, I'm not criticizing anybody, but I think that we reacted too, because of political agendas, we acted too slowly on increasing the, the Fed rate. That should have happened 
began to have happened fourth quarter last year. Now, as far as going forward, what we see, we see that we think we see a slowdown in certain sectors, certainly some in residential, maybe some in logistics, um, because it's been on fire for the last three years. But the, this is what I you know, like to share to everybody that listens. We are about to experience or in the process of experiencing the greatest revolution in manufacturing and production that we've seen since the 40s. Um, and what's caused this, again, is COVID helped. We, the, the U.S., a lot of the things that we produced in the U.S. and Puerto Rico as far as pharmaceuticals, they went offshore in the 90s. They started going back offshore. Well, COVID let our government and all of us realize that those things create national security issues. By having them offshore, we didn't control it, so we couldn't produce products for ourselves. So that stuff is coming back on in a huge way. The semiconductor world, as far as chips and, and um, all kinds of microelectronics products, those are all offshore. So we are, we've already begun to see it, but we think that you'll see manufacturing continue to expand like we haven't ever. You're going to see pharmaceuticals, um, chip manufacturing. A lot of these industries are going to expand the key for us as a country, though, is to recognize for us to support that kind of growth, you've got to have a very sophisticated technical workforce. Well, that workforce, I will argue with you that that workforce represents middle class America. So it doesn't, that group of people is what we lost in the 70s and 80s. It went away. And, you know, there's, you know, you've got the lower end and the high end, but you lost the middle end. And I think if if people would really, you know, really focus on trying to increase our technical skills, um, technically skilled workers, and we can supply the workers, you're going to see this expansion occur. So there may be a slowdown in certain areas, but we think there's going to be an expansion in other areas. It's an opportunity for young people to have really good paying jobs. It's good for the economies. It's good for the tax base. You know, one of the things we talk about is taxes and the, the spending or deficit spending we've done. Well, can you imagine if we suddenly had a giant force across the whole country that instead of making 15 bucks an hour, they're making 30 to 40 to 50 bucks an hour, and you were able to tax that. Mm-hmm. Not out of, I'm not saying tax out of meanness, or which they, they paid, paid their fair share. That would be a huge win for people. It'd be a win for the government. It'd be a win for everybody. Well, and you're, uh, we're coming back around to your interest and involvement in education here, right? Because what now suddenly we're talking about the technical college system of Georgia. We're talking about this uh, empowering the workforce in the trades and in technology through um, the technical colleges in Georgia, right? Yes, some of that. Uh, yes, that's the that's been the primary driver in the past. But it's important to realize that sometimes changes. You know, you know, I don't think it's just the two year colleges. I think a lot of your four year degrees are applicable as well to this, mm-hmm. because as you expand, um, you know, these things have got to be managed. So you've got. A grow, I think you'll have a huge growth potential in the technical schools as far as supplying the labor for that. But I also think maybe we look at the curriculum of what we're teaching kids coming out of school. And, you know, Europe, Germany's done a good job with this. We have an office in Friedrichshof in Germany, so I'm real involved with, the, with that office and what goes on in Germany with a lot of our customers. But they've done a good job of merging both of them, you know. So it's not, um, while I would advocate that we really need to shore up our technical schools even more so they can supply the labor, the hands-on labor. I think that we also need to look at the curriculum at some of the four-year schools and offer programs that that can accommodate the needs of these types of work from a management standpoint. So I think it's good for both. Wow. 
great words here from Tim Evans, folks. Tim is the chairman, founder of Evans General Contractors. Uh, Tim, wow, this has been great. Uh, lots of good work you're doing. Uh, I, Roger, I keep going on. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> but we've got to let Tim get back to the great work he does. But before we let you go, um, for those that would like to know more about Evans General Contractors, how can they uh, find out more? Um, we've got a really good marketing department that updates our website on a weekly basis. So if you go to Evans General Contractors Alpharetta, or you can contact any of the offices in the U.S., but you can visit the website. It's very informative, and we'd love to hear from you. Um, and if I can help anybody, I'd be glad to do so. Terrific. Tim Evans, folks. Tim, thank you so much for coming in and being on the show. Thank you very much. Tim, thanks for all you do. We, we yeah. appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, folks, just a quick reminder. This uh, show has been brought to you by Frazier & Dieter. Frazier & Dieter's brand promise is investing in relationships to make a difference. And they believe in taking the time to get to know their clients and each other through making the effort to support all of their constituencies as they grow. They understand by supporting people as individuals, they can make a difference, not only in their professional lives, but in their personal lives. If you'd like to know more about a firm like that, go to FraserDeeter.com. Roger, another great one. Yeah, John, thank you very much. And uh, we, we appreciate Tim being here and, and all the great words that he was able to share with us and look forward to doing it again next month. And maybe we can touch upon your trip to Alaska as well. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be on the other side of that one. So it'll be a good one. So, uh, well, folks, uh, thank you again for joining us here on Business Beat. For Roger Lesby, I'm John Ray. Join us next time. Thank you.